Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This netcast is brought to you by the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Office of Diversity and Equal Opportunity. The speaker is John Butler, Dean of the Graduate School and Howard R. Lamar Professor of History, presenting the keynote address to the 7th Annual Boucher Conference on Diversity in Graduate Education. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be the recipient of the Edward Boucher Medal, and I'm honored by the dignity of Edward Boucher's example, a remarkable example uh, that's instructive as today as it was in his own lifetime. I'm honored by the purposes of the Edward Boucher Society. I'm honored by the warmth and dedication and commitment of the Society's founders and leaders and I want specifically to mention Lisa Carriaga Lowe, who was the first director of Yale's Office for Diversity uh, and uh, Equal Opportunity, for Dean Emeritus Orlando Taylor of Howard University, who can't be with us tonight, but has always set an example in this group and is just a wonderful human being, uh, for Professor Emeritus Curtis Patton, whom you've met, uh, those of you who are downstairs, who you've met uh, earlier uh, this evening and would know, uh, for Michelle Neron, who is our current uh, director of the Office for Diversity and Equal Opportunity, and for P Pat Cabral, who's always been uh, with the ODE office and simply is a wonderful, warm human being. These people all care about widening the nature of academia, about bringing more people into uh, intellectual discourse in our society. And they live this life, they have lived it, and... Um, to be recognized by them, I want to say, is, a, is indeed a deep honor. They are the human and living personification of a commitment to openness, to opportunity, and to achievement that should be uh, exemplified and is exemplified in the life of Edward Boucher. Our question is that I want to talk about tonight is, why are we here at this conference? What is this about? What should we be up to? What should we be doing? Um, there are many mundane reasons we might be here. We might be here uh, just because it seemed like a good thing to do. We might be here because we knew somebody. We might be here because we, our paper was accepted on a panel. These are all perfectly fine things. Trust me, when I was a graduate student and someone said that you could give a talk, you could be on a paper, I was there. I can tell you that. Uh, so they said, okay, you come. I, I, you know, I, I had my ticket. I was ready to go. Um, but we're here, I think, for some implicit and explicit reasons as well that are exceedingly important. They're important to me, and I know that they're important to you, and they are the driving reasons why you're really here. They have to do with freedom, they have to do with intellectual freedom, and they have to do with achievement. Intellectual freedom and achievement is why we are here. It's why we're in a university. It's why we went to college. It's why we study what we do. These things are endemic to the nature of academic enterprise. They aren't always achieved. And we're also here because we know they're not always achieved. We're here because we know we can do a better job. We know we have to do a better job. And that's the purpose that we're here. Our task then, our charge, is improving and deepening 
our own commitment and the commitment of our institutions to intellectual freedom, to the freedom to bring anyone to our campuses, anyone to our campuses, and to allow us to study what we want to do. There are many examples and briefs for freedom. There's the American Declaration of Independence, or there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 in the 20th century. We can go back again to the 18th century and look at the French Declaration of the Rights of Man of 1789. I want to look tonight, I am a historian, and I want to look tonight at a different kind of example, and I want to end up with another kind of example. Both of them circulate in a peculiar way around Fisk University. And um, both of them circulate around a group associated with the university, and they circulate around an individual. And in particular, I want to look at a work, one of the great, one of the truly great books of, I would say, modern American history, and it could be said of American history period. And that is The Souls of Black Folk, published in 1903 by W.E.B. Du Bois, the fam most famous of all African-American intellectuals, and an intellectual whose stature is really beyond compare in the panoply of American intellectuals generally, to say nothing of the panoply of uh, intellectuals of any particular group. It is about, if you read The Souls of Black Folk, and I urge you all to read, it's a book that's still in print. There's a lovely edition uh, published by Penguin Press um, that's, uh, I don't know how many printings is in. Actually, it's not as lovely as it used to be because into so many printings that the, the type is getting a little fuzzy. Uh, so uh, sometimes you could look for a new, long out of copyright, but that's the one that most people use because it has an excellent. Uh, it's a book about the status of African Americans and the nature of America. It's important that you understand that both of these are the topics of the souls of black folk. It's a book about the stature of African Americans and the nature of our own American society using America in the broadest sense at the end of the 19th century or what was then the beginning, the very beginning of the 20th century. And it's a book about the fate and the soul of the South. And that's true, and it was true for Du Bois, because at that time, it's where the vast majority of African Americans lived, and it's where the problem, what Du Bois would define as the problem of America, was largely, not exclusively, but largely to be witnessed. And this was the book in which Du Bois announced that the problem of America is the problem of the color line. The problem of America is the problem of race, by which he meant the difference between black and white, and how that was signified in the society of the South. It's about the character of diversity. It's about uh, realities of diversity that we can apply to our own situation in modern 21st century American universities. And what Du Bois was speaking about was the link of diversity and intellectual freedom to the nature of freedom itself, to the nature of openness itself. He argues in this book that without openness, there is no freedom. And if freedom doesn't, doesn't, isn't uh, encompassed by all members of society, then the society is not free. 
even if it allows privileges for some people, the society is not free because the society is burdened by the curse of discrimination. In some regards, I want to argue then that the desire and the demand for achievement and resilience is the story of the book. That's what The Souls of Black Folk is about. It's about the demand for knowledge and the affirmation of its rightful power, the power of knowledge that ought to be obtained in every individual in society, not just some, but for all. It's about human frailty as well as about human dignity. And he discusses the frailty in its own way of Southern racists and the frailty of men and women of his own skin color who had a hard time, a difficult time, trying to countermand the nature of racism in the late 19th century South. And in, it's also about what he believed would be the reality of freedom that could be achieved if indeed we were to work. And that's part of the message I want to convey to you. If there is a single thread in the souls of black folk, it is about the work of freedom. That freedom is a labor. Freedom is something that must be earned. Freedom is something that must always be in one's mind because it's in one's body and it's in one's daily life and that is not something that is given. You don't just get freedom and walk away. It has to be constantly nourished. It has to be constantly um, renewed. And this was important for Du Bois because he noted two important contrasts in The Souls of Black Folk. And that is their thrill of emancipation had been eviscerated by the reality of bigotry and poverty that remained in the aftermath of the American Civil War. And yet what he saw, what he saw and wrote about when he wrote about so many African Americans in the Souls of Black Folk was the dignity of their aspiration, the justice of what they sought, the truth of their own convictions, and their souls. The book is not entitled The Souls of Black Folk for Nothing. Their inner character tested in a world of disappointment, of hatred, of physical punishment, of lynching, of murder, and of a lack of rights. He denied at the same time something that was so attached to uh, a bigoted view of African American peoples and that was that because they worked, they could not think. That is, because they had been brought to America as laborers, they were not worthy of the mind. And it was something that Du Bois, to his core, denied throughout his entire life. He wasn't above his own partisanship. He could be vain. He could be difficult. He fought a long battle with Booker T. Washington. And at the same time, if you would like to read about 
the, uh, sort, of e sort of eviscerate your own stereotypes about both Du Bois and Washington. I suggest to you a brand new book, it actually has only been out for several months, by Robert Norrell. It's called Up From History, and it is a biography, a brand new, and I would say revisionist biography of Booker T. Washington that really explains how, yes, they had different intellectual views and approaches, but Washington was not just an Uncle Tom, as was the, as the, was the characterization of the time, and Du Bois wasn't himself just an ivory tower intellectual even though he had a PhD. They both labored for their own people, albeit in different ways, and they frequently didn't agree. And yet, Du Bois, for all of his eloquence in the, on the dignity of aspiration, idealism, and, and uh, uh, his emphasis on decency, and for the emphasis on the work on labor and freedom and dignity, dignity he emphasized always how this is the time. Dignity, work, commitment is not something for tomorrow. It's something for today. It's something that we used, that we work on today, so that in fact we can achieve for tomorrow. And I want to read, uh, not great about reading, but I want to read from a little tiny paragraph from Du Bois. It's not from The Souls of Black Folk. It's from a very obscure book that was collected together by uh, uh, the historian Herbert Ackfecker and published in the 1980s. It's called Prayers for Dark People. And uh, they are uh, aphorisms and prayers that Du Bois gave over many years uh, that Ackfecker, who was the collector of the Du Bois papers, uh, uh, put together. Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not sometime more convenient, not for more, some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of work, and tomorrow comes the harvest. What did Du Bois mean, and what can we apply to this for ourselves? We can't pretend to speak with Du Bois's momentousness. We aren't we aren't the managers of a whole society. We can't pretend to, to say that we are those kinds of public intellectuals who have the stature of Du Bois. We come and live inside modern research universities that seem almost antiseptic in, their, in, the, in certain aspects of their character. And Du Bois spoke to and of a people who were newly emancipated, but as Du Bois would point out, we can speak to our own times. We can speak to our own conditions. We can speak to our own purposes. And we, like Du Bois, have work to do. And that, I want to say, is why we are here. This is always our seed time. It's, it's a seed time for those of us who are uh, sort of past the midpoint of our career. And it's the seed time for those of you, almost all the people here, who are just not even near the midpoint of your career. You're at the early stages of your career. And this is the seed time. This is your seed time. And it is always our work, whether it's at this end of that spectrum or that end of the spectrum. It is the work that will dignify us. It is the work that will keep us going. But what is our work? What can we say in modern universities that we can apply the lessons that could be learned by reading The uh, Souls of Black Folk. Du Bois spoke 
in the souls of black folk of opening the South and America. And we must speak about opening our own institutions. We must speak about opening, indeed, our whole society. Colleges and universities remain deeply unrepresentative of America, deeply privileged institutions. And I say that myself as the graduate of a public university. I grew up in a farming town of 1,000 people, and I went to the University of Minnesota as a freshman with 60,000 people. Uh, I will say that I actually loved it because no one knew who I was. <laughs> but I was so, most people, you know, were afraid to go to the U, as it was said, because, because they wouldn't be known. Oh, I thought this was great <laughs> uh, that, I, that I wouldn't be known. Um, but at that time, the University of Minnesota was not representative. It was a great place. I had a wonderful experience, but it wasn't representative of Minnesota society. How many American, Native American students attended the University of Minnesota in the 1960s? And how many African American students attended? And how many poor students attended? Not very many is the honest truth. Should not we want Think of, this, think of this little vignette. Most of you, no matter the age of your life, have within the last month walked by a public school and maybe you have watched little children, especially I like to think kindergarten children. My granddaughter is six years old and she's in kindergarten in Minneapolis. And you watch them go to school and you watch the looks on their faces and you watch them interchange with each other. And they're, they're so generally happy. They're so alive. They're so interested. They have so many questions. They have so many questions that the teacher has to monitor their questions. The teacher has to sort of tone them down because they're so open to so many different experiences. But what happens when they're 16? What happens when they're 19? What happens when they're, when they're 22? What is something is wrong in our society when we can't say to these children, irrespective of their questions, forget the questions, how many of those kindergarten children will graduate from high school if they are Native American? How many children will graduate from high school if they're Hispanic? How many children will graduate from high school if they're African American? How many children in my home state of Minnesota will graduate from high school if they're Hmong? if they are Vietnamese refugees? How many will then go to college? And how many will then go to graduate school? And we all know, I don't have to be a social scientist and I don't have to have run the numbers to know exactly what the graph looks like. It looks like Niagara Falls because it's going to fall just like this. And don't we have an obligation to create a different kind of society? We're in graduate school, and I can't pretend here to tell you that we should, we can and should fix the problems of kindergarten or fourth grade or sixth grade or 11th grade. I can't even say, I can say, because I'm a teacher and I teach a freshman seminar, so we can do a lot of work to teach, un, to, to fix undergraduate education. But I want to speak now about graduate education. And how can we open up graduate education in the same way, a parallel way, that when, in which Du Bois wanted to open up the South and in the process open up America. I think in several ways. How will we think of our mission in admitting students to graduate study? 
when we or you, some of you are beginning graduate students, but when you think you've gone through the admissions process, but when you finish, and let's say you in fact are a beginning new assistant professor at Stony Brook, at Southern Connecticut State University, you get a great job at Princeton, you go to UCLA, or you go to one of the schools at which I taught, Cal State Bakersfield, which is a, was entirely a school of first-generation uh, uh, college students. Uh, how will you do admissions at the graduate level? What will you look for? Will we and you look for a unique individual? Or will we or you look for someone who looks like us? Someone who went to the most prestigious institution. Someone who has markers that signify social status more than it signifies the individual worth and achievement of the person who has applied. Will you or me look for a unique individual? Or will we look for a prestigious recommender, the most famous recommender, forgetting that we're not admitting the recommender? We're admitting the student, right? And the recommender already has his or her PhD. They're not going to come here and do it all over again. So which person are we going to look for? And those, those of you who, have all, who are, uh, there are several faculty members here, know what admissions committees look like, how they, how they read applications. And I have said to my faculty members here, this is not a good thing to do. We're admitting this student. We're not admitting the person with whom the student seems to have studied. Will we or you look for the trappings of success? Or will we or you look for the person who has made the most of his or her opportunities no matter where that achievement was to be found? Will you or me read the work of the individual to get as close as we can to the person who we are, we are touching? And why do I suggest all these things? I suggest all these things for uh, a, another reason. What's a common, well, I don't know how funny it is, but I'll tell you, what's a common joke among directors of graduate studies in many graduate departments when they're asked at the end of six or seven years looking at PhD admittees, how did the original admissions list look? How did it turn out? And there's a common aphorism among many directors of graduate studies, and that is you take the original list like this, and you turn it upside down. What's the moral? That our, our ability to predict who is going to be the best graduate student is very, very limited. And therefore, the great confidence with which we assemble admissions lists in graduate programs is not verified necessarily by the results that come out six and seven years later. Why are these questions important? Because they again go to the question of openness, about what we actually do in the nitty-gritty world that comprises the heart of graduate education, the world in which we all live. Let me suggest something else, the time to degree. Many of your graduate deans probably seemingly incessantly harp on the time to degree. But let me suggest some of the fatal problems of long times to degree. On average in the United States, it takes a full 10 years to earn a PhD, on average. 
Now that counts many programs, PhD programs, that are part-time programs. And so that's not fair. So let's take out the many part-time, many programs that will allow part-time graduate study, and let's only concentrate on the programs at well-supported, quote, elite, unquote, universities. The time to degree in the humanities is over seven years. The time to degree in the social sciences is about six and a half years. And the time to degree in the sciences is supposed, should be about five, but in fact is almost six and has not gone down. It's hovering right where it is. We could say, well, that's what time it takes to earn a PhD. Uh, I would point out two things. One is it wasn't always true. It wasn't true in the 1950s, 60s, and early 1970s. Those times to degree in the elite universities are down by at least a year and sometimes by two, depending upon how you want to count in the 1960s and 70s. And I'll give you another notion. If we want to diversify America, ask the families of minority applicants. Where would they like their son or daughter to go? What would they want them to do? Think of this, law school three years, business school two years, medical school five years, depending upon how that's actually worked out. Graduate school, what is the common question asked? So I won't ask the graduate students. Well, I'll ask the PhD students here, but well, I won't ask you. Um, uh, but I can, I can bet, I'm gonna take a bet with every graduate student in this room that the following question has been asked by at least one relative. Okay, and uh, how much money am I willing? So we're in the basketball tournament season. A lot of people are betting. I don't know how much money I'm willing to put on this, but I'm going to say that they have all asked this question. When will you finish? Okay? Because PhD work is the only question that we really, of which we really ask that. We, we don't really normally ask that of bachelor students. We don't normally ask that of business school students, law school students, medical school students, but we ask it of PhD students because the time seems to go on so long. For a minority family concerned about the future welfare of their own son or daughter, these are pressing questions. And a whole series of surveys and anecdotal sets of information will suggest that American graduate schools, PhD institutions are suffering, comparing, trying to trying to convince minority students to come to do PhD work when in fact they can finish in business school or law school or medical school or, or a series of other schools in a much more guaranteed period of time and where it could be that their job prospects are much better. So what choice do they make? I worry, and I'm, I, I know my own graduate students, I have been tired of hearing Dean Butler talk about time to degree, but I also find, add a third point, and that is one only, look at the color of my hair, one only has so many years in life. Right? And a decade, a decade to study means, you know, at this end, you don't get it back. Right? <laughs> it's not going to come back to you at this end. And so even if you're not thinking about it now, as I like to think, then think about it down the road. But I will say one thing, uh, and that is that um, I have never, I will also draw on an observation I would make, and that is I have never known a PhD student who finished in six years to say, to come back and say, gee, 
I wish I'd stayed another year and a half or two years because, oh, I could have perfected my dissertation. Right? I, I loved graduate school so much, I would rather have done that than have my new job actually working for Merck Pharmaceuticals or, or, or my new job teaching anywhere in the United States. I've never known a single student to come back and say that to me. And it's a testament to the freedom that comes after you have finished. So that when Du Bois says this is the seed time, he also means that it's the time for the seed to flower. It's the time for us to grow. So I think, in fact, that uh, we, need to, we need to be realistic about our own programs. And we need to figure out how much self-indulgence. Of, many of you are going to be faculty members. When you become new faculty members, will you, will you Will you luxuriate in the length of, your, of the training you will now require of your students? Or will you say, how can I do this intellectually, with intellectual respectability, with, with uh, vision, with achievement, and also have someone finish in five or six years so they can go on to have a life, get another half decade, go into the classroom earlier, change the world earlier, than they can do now. People like Boucher or Du Bois, whose PhD was from Harvard, were intellectuals. Why? What did they see in this business? Why did they want it? I think with, with, with Boucher, we don't have many words. With Du Bois, we have a lot of words. What did he see? That it epitomized the deepest of research that it epitomized a free range of, of thought, that it epitomized the greatest reach, the potential greatest reach to others. It could be said that if it works right, PhD study, deep research, allows the voice to speak, it allows the voice to sing. It allows you to sing in a way that is really probably not possible in many, many other occupations because you sing with the problems you invent. If you think about law school, you, people bring problems to lawyers. If you think about medical school, people bring conditions to physicians. If you think about business school, people bring, bring business trends. But in graduate school, in PhD study, in deep research, what is going to be the greatest thing that each peer, person, student here is going to do? You are going to invent your own problem. You are going to create a problem, and then you're going to solve it. And there are very, very few occupations in which you can do that. And in doing that, you can sing with your own voice. Why do I use the metaphor of singing? I happen to like music, I will admit that. Um, but there is another reason. Um, and it's uh, uh, actually within the text of The Souls of Black Folk. If you read The Souls of Black Folk, you will notice that Du Bois included a musical example at the beginning of every chapter. He included above that example either lyrics or a poem. And at the end, toward the end of, of, of The Souls of Black Folk, he wrote one of his most, most um, amazing and I think electrifying and well-known chapters. It's a chapter on the sorrow songs. That's what he called them. They were African-American spirituals. 
he uh, had a complicated relationship to religion, and I'm not here to explicate religion or whatnot. It, it was the vehicle that he found, African Americans in the post-Civil War South and the pre-Civil War South, used to express their own aspirations, their own sense of dignity, their own sense of purpose. And they epitomized the struggle and the aspirations of African Americans after emancipation. And, and they used those spirituals to seek to change the South, to transform the South, and to transform America. Du Bois had a historical example. He had received his bachelor's degree in 1888 from Fisk University. In the summer in which he received his degree, he managed the Fisk Glee Club. And because he managed the Fisk Glee Club, he knew of Fisk's, uh, and I say this with great respect to all of the other great features of Fisk University, but the single most well-known um, group at Fisk, and that is the Fisk Jubilee Singers. The Fisk Jubilee Singers were organized in 1871. They still sing today. Uh, you can, you can uh, if, uh, 10 years ago, you could have seen a PBS documentary on the Fisk Jubilee Singers that was based on a book by Andrew Ward uh, that's it's this thick and gives an account of the singers because Ward found it a fascinating cultural phenomenon. They sang for, a for two reasons. One, frankly, was to raise money for Fisk because Fisk operated in the 18, late 1860s, was founded in 1866 and 1867. Fisk operated on a shoestring and it was probably at the verge of bankruptcy two or three times every year from the 1860s well into the 1870s and 80s. It had, and they also sang for, to advance the dignity of African Americans. They ended up within a few years singing for Queen Victoria. They toured America. They sang in church, in church uh, buildings. They sang in opera houses. America in the late 19th century was filled with opera houses. There weren't very many operas there, but they, that's what the buildings were called. They sang for white audiences and black audiences. They were discriminated against. They were sometimes spit upon. They were, they were treated in a hostile fashion by any number of people, but they sang. And in their singing, they advanced the world in which they wanted to do. They, they wanted to change. And they opened the South and opened America in the process, at least to the tiny degree they could, they could achieve. When they sang, they, they knew how to perform. They walked out onto a darkened stage, and their opening song was the African-American spiritual, Steal Away. If you know the song, and I, I have I've debated whether I should sing it for you, but in any case, um, if you know the song, um, they sang it in unison. And sotto voce, that is, they sang it very quietly, and I'm actually going to try, okay? So they sang, steal away, steal, you can sing too. Steal away, steal away to Jesus. Steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to be here. Now, when they sang, and they sang in unison, it's really hard, without starting on a pitch pipe, 
First of all, you all have to have the same note, and it's really hard to sing softly. But it's, of course, why did they sing Soto Voce? Because they wanted everyone to listen. They wanted their white audience and their black audience literally to sit at the edge of their chair and listen to what they were saying. And what were they saying? If the verses are obviously religious, but they are powerful also because of the way in which they conveyed the challenge of these men and women, the first Fisk Jubilee groups were both men and women, to the society in which they lived. Listen to the opening word, steal. It was the word that signified the most common form of resistance to slavery from the early 17th century to emancipation. It was theft. And here they were using that word as a challenge, particularly to their white audiences, saying, yes, steal. It was, they, it was openly confrontational because they were saying that they had a means to achieve their own ends. They could steal away to Jesus in their own point of view, and they could steal home. I think I forgot that verse when I sang it, okay? But I won't go back. They conveyed a sense of urgent motion. I ain't got long to be here. And in the process, what they did was they signified the way in which they could achieve their own life, achieve their own society, achieve their own sense of being as men, as women, as Americans in the society, the deeply bigoted society in which they lived and the deeply bigoted society in which they were moving. Research and scholarship will allow you to sing. Research and scholarship will allow more like you if we open up our universities to sing. To sing songs, verses of intellectual excitement. To sing songs and verses that change the way each of your fields have positioned themselves. To open up biology as much as history. And if you're not, you don't need to be musical to do this kind of singing. We sing and you sing through human complexities narrated compellingly either in physical or humanities research. Scholarship limbs the truth through new evidence won by ingeniously creative and staggeringly intense research that can seldom be duplicated in any other form of study beyond the PhD. Scholarship flourishes in and through communities whose oxygen of labor, if I can put it that way, flows through the quiet examples of others past and present, and those others are all ennobled by the fact that those others are different than you are. And the more that there are, there are different others, the more the world opens out onto itself 
because we can create universities that again, uh, as Dean Neron said and as Peter Salovey have said, look more like America, look more like the world than we currently look now. And it is scholarship and research that can be opened up with a highly diverse, different kind of student body uh, that provides our best and perhaps most thoughtful glimpse of the human future and can channel and change the human future. And that is ours to shape, yours to shape, in the historical time that we inhabit today. Our time is as historical as the past. And this gift of research thrives because individuals and institutions sustain the capacity for research and dialogue and especially contemplation if they are more open than less open. There is not a single department at Yale that is poorer because its faculty has become more diverse. There is not a single field of study that has become less distinguished because its practitioners represent more the way the world and America looks. Not one. Transforming scholarship is the only legacy that all of us individually and collectively can responsibly leave to our heirs and to our neighbors as students themselves. And it's the unique and transforming gift of a scholarship created by diverse different men and women representing so many different, all the different strains of the nature of humanity. That is what we are here to do. That is what we are all about. That's what the Boucher Conference is all about. Like the gift of song that Du Bois previewed in each one of his chapters in The Souls of Black Folk, like the gift of song in the brave young men and women who raised money for Fisk University and created its future. The scholarship and the research that we honor, that you honor by your own work, in the, is the larger purpose that we are proud to proclaim by shout, by unison, whether we sing sotto voce or whether we proclaim it all aloud. And there's a re simple reason for that, that in the end, we are here ultimately, I believe, for only one purpose. And it's very simple, that truth and justice only flourish amidst knowledge and its practice. And that together, they are the compelling, the only compelling, the, the, the primary reasons for what we are, what we do, and why we do it. This is why we are academics. This is why we are researchers. This is why we are teachers, because this is the compelling work we're in. We are in work that will tell us about history, sociology, microbiology, environmental studies, but we are, and all of that goes to a single purpose. We are here for truth and for justice. That is our purpose. Thank you very much. This netcast was brought to you by the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, Office of Diversity and Equal Opportunity. 
The speaker was John Butler, Dean of the Graduate School and Howard R. Lamar Professor of History, presenting the keynote address to the 7th Annual Boucher Conference on Diversity in Graduate Education. This was recorded on March 26, 2010.